I feel like my core job in that space is really as a translator. So we need to be able to understand what our factory and our, our non-technical team members need to know technically. And then I stretch people that are completely non-technical to at least understand what the technologists, either what they need or what they're producing. Hello, I'm Daniel Weinman, and this is Beyond Technical, the non-technical founders podcast. You see, in order to bring my startups to life, I had to go from non-technical to CTO. I failed again and again and again until I finally succeeded a few times. Now I think it's time to share some of these experiences with you, together with a bunch of amazing guests I met along the way. And today we have Todd Youngblood. Todd is a serial entrepreneur with a passion for creating new consumer products. He currently helps you sleep better, creating many, many products to Creo, his company. He's also specialized in scaling e-commerce businesses, especially DTC. I hope you really enjoyed this conversation. Let's check it out. All right. Welcome, Todd, to Beyond Technical. It's a pleasure to have you, man. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I'm excited to kind of see what's in store for us today. Yeah, me too. Me too. Maybe, maybe let's start by me saying that you've been creating consumer products your whole life, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of just one of those wacky entrepreneurial kind of guys. I like to get to my hands dirty. Totally non-technical background, uh, no engineering or sort of programming skills, but uh, uh, have a knack for for bringing products to market. From what we were able to research, you you didn't start out in product, right? You started doing sales and management around sales. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's somewhat correct. Uh, actually, my first first real company job or corporate job was working for my uncle's uh, company. He was the inventor of the waterbed back 50 years ago. <laughs> so he was also a very entrepreneur. I worked for his company in Southern or Northern California uh, before I graduated college as an intern and did like uh, inventory analytics and uh, basically try to help him run his business uh, better, smarter and worked for him out of college. Um, I was kind of just the, the numbers guy until their their sourcing guy quit, their their purchasing manager quit. And then I mm. kind of started really back in uh, early days communicating daily with Asia on helping uh, products get produced and brought to market. Got so it. I kind of started my first experience with dealing with uh, overseas production and uh, yeah, started, started kind of growing from there and absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, and then became a product manager But unfortunately, the, the corporate track was, you know, hey, product management's great, but if you want to make money, you gotta you gotta be in sales. So mm. I followed the money path a little bit to kind of keep growing within the organizations I was working for. Got it, got it. So it was more like a career move, but it, the the product spark was already there, and you, you just went uh, took a, a, a sidestep for a while for a bit. That's right. Yeah, so when I had a chance to kind of run my own business, uh, then I, it was a combination of product development and sales. Um, but even the, the yeah. sales that I did do was definitely more consultative and uh, kind of product mm -hmm. development related by having, knowing how products worked, uh, at least kind of on, on, on a novice level, definitely gave me an edge. Understanding product market fit, I think, was probably the Perfect. really my best uh, skill set. And I think even still, 
uh, allows me to go into conversations empathetically to figure out how to best get a product to meet a given uh, market opportunity. And that's that's amazing that that you mentioned product market fit because oh this this podcast is for any kind of non technical founder but uh, more commonly around tech and software. So the, this this concept is has been trending in software for a few years, but it's something that everybody who does product uh, like consumer goods uh, needs to be aware, right? And, and in fact, it's much harder for physical products to than software because iterations are concrete, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, and they, they take a lot longer and they have any mistakes you make have much longer consequences. You can't just make a change on something, you know, if, if you own, if you, you own it the way it's built and uh, to, 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 you know, to build it wrong, you have to deal with those consequences. Yeah. So. And so uh, in, in, in a sense, it's probably more important that you learn from your experiences when, when the iteration cycle is longer and has this, this, this barrier that's much bigger than getting software, right? So you, you need to make sure you do learn from any experience you have. How, how, how was your track around this, like iterating on products? So how, what's the, the, the beginning of this for you? You know, we're at a spot now where we're, we're getting a lot closer to 100 employees or as our company has grown. The, the types of problems you deal with or the challenges you face uh, change over time. And I think that probably what, what your, your audience is dealing with is something that every single founder of a company that scales dealing with, deals with. And that's when, how do you handle or how do you properly manage um, issues, be it product development, be it staffing, be it recruiting, finances that are outside of your own skill sets or knowledge base? Yeah. And so how do you get to a spot where you're able to effectively address intellectually or, or frankly, competently an area that you just don't know anything about? So for me, I had when we get to difficult decision points, things are going to go wrong. There's just there's no scenario in which things go perfectly all the time. Our jobs as entrepreneurs is find a way to fix fix problems. Uh, so, you know, everyone, I think, has spent a day uh, essentially as an entrepreneurial firefighter. You know, how do you spend that time fighting fires efficiently, sufficiently and, and adequately? And how do you do your best job to make sure that the problems and mistakes that are, are come up invariably are, are reasonable to, to, to solve, to, to address? Changing gears a bit, you've been working with sleep, uh, improving sleep for, for a while. Can you tell us why did you start working on, on sleep? How did it happen? And lead us uh, from the beginning until the moment of your current uh, products around it. So the, you know, working from out of college, I think in the back of my mind, I always knew that if you work on the right sleep problem, it's, it's a very, it's a large adjustable market. It's, it's everyone sleeps and virtually everyone sleeps in bed at night and, vir you know, virtually most people sleep at night. So uh, large adjustable market. We, I, I was probably early 30s and I was just sleeping ferociously hot at night. I've always been an athlete, kind of stayed fairly active, but whatever, whatever metabolic change was happening within me was 
definitely making it difficult to get great quality sleep. I was waking up really sweaty and hot. Uh, we, you know, we lived in air conditioning. It was a quite a comfortable, comfortable home and a comfortable bed. But when you're ferociously hot, you just don't get great quality sleep. Yeah. So it was an issue what we really started working to solve based on personal need. Um, what actually ended up happening is, um, you know, and that's way back before there was really effective sleep tracking. There wasn't a lot of data around sleep. Sleep um, was really emerging as, as, a, as a category. Um, you know, mattresses were sold as sleep improvement, but the reality is by and large, they're furniture you lay on at night uh, and they're just a little softer and squishier. Where really the transition happened is when my co-founder and wife, Tara, uh, started really doing in-depth sleep research. Uh, probably we started hearing from customers, starting with the Olympic athletes in for the uh, 2012 London Olympics, that they were using our product to optimize their sleep, their readiness mm -hmm. for their performance. And that's when we started to feel like, hey, this is more than comfort. This is not just the, we're not solving the problem we thought we were solving. We're actually solving an entirely different one, which is sleep quality, not sleep comfort. And that's when things got really interesting. And that, that led to new products, I imagine. For sure. Yeah. And in fact, I would say um, we're probably 10% on, on the way to our journey of where we see sleep tech going. Um, it started with some patents that we filed back in 2017 about real-time uh, feedback loop on sleep. Uh, even the, the sleep trackers you wear now, they don't report anything in real time. So if it's yeah. a Fitbit or Aura Ring or even Bedit, um, there's really not any uh, technology that gives you real-time sleep feedback. And once we have real-time sleep information, we can actually uh, have an intervention that works in real-time to produce better sleep. So all kinds of amazing things we're working on. Uh, we'll have sleep tracking coming out uh, early next year that will allow that closed feedback loop. And then we can have interventions that read and report in real time and utilize machine learning to get better, smarter with the individual sleep. So each individual customer will have uh, improved sleep based on the way you sleep today and the way you should sleep. Yeah, and of course, a lot of technological development involved in, in these solutions. And I imagine that after many years of working with products and technological products and everything, you by now must, must be either more technical yourself Or at least you can see the matrix when <laughs> when people are working on, on technology. You can you can probably hold deep conversations with with people. Can can you share a little bit about your experience, your development as a non technical founder doing technology? I feel like my my core job in that space is really as a translator. Yeah. So we need to be able to understand what our factory and our our non technical team members need to know technically. And so I would say I stretch to become more technical. And then I stretch people that are completely non-technical to at least understand what the technologists, either what they need or what they're producing in order to keep, I need to manage the gap, you know, uh, to make sure that the gap doesn't become so wide that our team can't effectively communicate. Yeah, and this is, is this something you, you naturally did in like uh, being the translator or is this something you had to work on? Uh, I would say I had a natural affinity for hardware products to be able to understand technical terms and 
problems and solutions? How do you get a tool out of the mold? How do you, you know, improve the, the QC process? Uh, I knew nothing about how do you effectively develop an app and had a really hard time with it. Uh, and it really, we got a lot better at it when we figured out how to hire the right people. And it was the people that really, that was their zone of genius mm-hmm. that really understood the technical nature of how do you do things well in that space. And even still, you know, I get the messages of Git, GitHub, you know, code codes being pushed to GitHub. Uh, and, you know, I get the notices, but that's not going to be value add for me to spend any time there. Yeah. Uh, what I need to know is what is our team doing right in, according to best practices to produce, you know, durable, durable products, durable software products. Yeah, that's amazing. And this this is uh, at the core of what our audience wants to, to develop, which is how do I hire technical people? How do I know if that's their zone of genius or not? How did you learn how to hire uh, software developers and or software development? I would say, you know, we've been we had been hiring people for a long time. So I think we had a good sense on culture fit and character. What Perfect. we needed was, and this was a actually it was a, a friend of mine that we met at uh, industry conference uh, as one of the founders of 10% Happier. Oh, he struggled with a very similar thing because he himself was non-technical. Essentially where we got to is we needed to find through a referral network or someone else that can help us validate the technical skills. But in our case, we hired that was extremely technical, highly competent, and was able to identify the rest of the team and the type of skills that we really needed to fill out the, the suite of engineers to bring our products to market. But it, I, I was never going to be able to effectively identify technical skills because, you know, I can't smell a rat. I can't tell the difference of someone that can speak the right lingo versus can actually do the right work. Perfect. You got cut a little bit when you said the title. Is it a VP of engineering? You, you said? Yeah. Perfect. In our yeah. case, it was, it was a VP of engineering. But you, you, you don't know how to smell a rat, but you do know how to lead a VP of engineering. Exactly. So once, honestly, our key hire, kind of a foundational hire. Yeah. And now with the way our product is set up is we've got a product management team, uh, an engineering team, and those have different reporting structures. So we maintain friction between product and engineering of what to build and how to build it. So once we started building out those teams, the, the, the what to build and the how to build it, that they were able to kind of help continue to identify key talent and whether or not that would fit within our teams and be able to deliver on what the, the market needs from us. And how early in the process did you hire the VP of engineering? Too late. <laughs> Too late. Tell, tell me the story about the, well, it being late. You know, I, I think we, we felt like we could do it on our own. Uh, so I would say we, we closed our first round of external funding in 2017. So we bootstrapped it for the first 10 years of the company. Uh, and then we, we closed a big seed round in 2017. And we, we took those funds. First, we went and hired app development companies and Got ended it. up with a disastrous app. I mean, it was a mess. It was a pile of Indian uh, spaghetti code. And that's not to say all, all, all programmers or all uh, development companies out of India make spaghetti code. But in our case, it was a fairly typical example of uh, we didn't give them a good uh, product requirements document. We sort of evolved through what we thought we wanted to what we really needed. And the way the coding, the code base was written, we just piled code on top of code to fix problems. Yeah. So by the time we brought it to a competent development house, 
there was, you know, probably 12,000 lines of code and we probably needed three yeah. uh, to get the job done. So it was, then it was almost impossible to untangle. Uh, so we didn't set, start with the right architecture. We didn't know what questions to ask. And mm-hmm. so that became a painful process because we wasn't our zone of genius. We didn't bring in that skill set early enough in the conversation. We trusted our partners, which I'm sure is a pretty typical story that you would hear from. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it still is. And there, there are things uh, in, in the community that help nowadays, especially if you start. I, I don't know if that would be the case for, for your application because it's very R&D driven, right? But uh, most founders today can start without code and and only bring code to the table later on and then they in the meantime they learn how to to find the ask the right questions just just like you mentioned but it is by far the the most common scenario is like you hire an agency there there are two very common scenarios you hire an agency and you you end up just just like in your example which i want to dig uh, later on a little more on it but also you find someone to be your technical co-founder and then they work with you for a while and leave to work at a bigger company bigger company because the market's so hot it's i would say that that's the other common scenario yeah for sure i mean the people get bored people get restless uh it takes too long and too much money to much time yeah too much personal investment too much sacrifice uh yeah i think there's lots of reasons um you know and but that's the, you know that's that's the unfortunate reason why most entrepreneurs fail i mean the, the statistics are not in their favor at all yeah be they technical founders and non-technical founders it's about overcoming the obstacles and sometimes obstacles are uh you know you sh- maybe you shouldn't overcome them maybe it's time to sort of put down the shovel sometimes mm-hmm. but you know the there's also a lot to be said for the reason that the 1% make it is because they push through the difficult spots when yeah. 99% wouldn't find a path forward. Coming back a little bit to your your example, uh, hiring uh, an agency out of India, because I think this will help um, a lot of people that are trying to, to hire a software development. How uh, long since the kickoff the, of the project to the point where you had a version of the app of or a version of an app in your device for you to test and use in this bad uh, case? You know, I think the, the biggest issue is because we didn't have, even it could have probably been solved with someone on an advisor level, board of advisor level. You know, it's really easy to get sort of sold on what's happening in the, the in view or the or to say, hey, this is flowing, it looks like this, it's going to work like this, mm-hmm. and not really know what types of problems you're going to face after. Um, you know, I would encourage, we did not do a great job of maintaining MVP. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what we needed to learn was, we, you know, be absolutely ruthless with an MVP that works perfectly in the given scenario. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't allow for fe- feature creep. Don't add that new shiny toy that extra integration and extra API connection until everything is working in the core software in its environment with the right tool sets completely. And, and just don't get distracted on any other nice to have window dressing until you've got a product that's that's accomplishing its core functionality. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's very valuable. Um, 
coming back in time a little a little bit, I know in your consultancy business, you were able to exit the uh, outdoor uh, business, right? Yeah. Can, can you tell us a bit the story first first of the creation of this sector and then the, this sale because it's a goal that many people have to to be able to to sell a company and and I always like to to know a little bit about the stories behind it yeah I mean our 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 story was pretty crazy um so I started the my oldest company even though he invented the waterbed when I worked for him he was in the outdoor business selling mm. if anyone does any camping and they've long time ago would have camped with a solar powered or solar heated shower. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my business he did for 20 years. He created a product called the sun shower. So I was basically in the camping business. It was kind of close to outdoor um, and was kind of touching the pool business, but not directly related. It was kind of an associated or parallel business. Long story short, I had relationships both on the factory side as well as on the um, customer side. Mm -hmm. Got into that business. Uh, Absolutely had no money. We were bootstrapping and trying to find a way to to buy product and sell product that was and keep the margin in the middle. It was a seasonal business, so tremendous cash flow pressures where we basically made money three months a year, broke even two months a year and lost money seven months a year. Mm -hmm. So really, really difficult P&L cycles. You're coming off your your sort of longest drought of, of revenue and, and you need to buy products for the next season. So okay. very tough cash flow business. We ended up with, um, in, it was in 2013 with Walmart that stuck us with uh, over a million dollars of product built, ready to ship. It was a, it was a wet, rainy summer. And mm. uh, we, Memorial Day, they said, we don't need it. We're canceling all our orders. And I said, well, you know, guys, if you do this, it's probably going to bankrupt us. His answer basically was like, if a million dollars of cancellation is going to bankrupt you, you really shouldn't be selling to Walmart. Not not very helpful, not, not a great, <laughs> great partner. Uh, but that was the scenario. And the reality is when you're talking to a, you know, a hundred billion dollar company, they, they, they can't fix your problem. Yeah. They expect you to be bigger and, and resilient on your end. And, you know, they could handle it all number of ways. They could say, well, hold it till next year, whatever. The reality was the same is, you know, on a low margin business, ship the million dollars, I would only end up with say $200,000 in, in, in uh, gross margin to be able to pay off my debts. Instead, I ended up with you know eight hundred thousand dollars of costs that I couldn't ship. So we had to make some very pretty aggressive business you know decisions to keep things afloat. We went to our bank and we told them the situation. We cut some employees, but basically we hung, hung up the phone. And within the next three weeks, it was clear to me that I had to sell. I had to put my best salesmanship skills to work and make sure that even though we were basically had no money to operate our business, had to find a way to sell more than we have ever sold before. Cause that was really the only thing I could sell in my company. I could basically sell our book of business. Mm -hmm. And so sure enough, I was able to get some great contracts that we were to ship in 2014 and find a way to essentially sell that book of business to an acquiring company um, and exit that business. And, and in the end, we, you know, it was a, it was a solid seven-figure uh, business sale. We paid off all our debt. We didn't go through bankruptcy. None of our vendors got burned, uh, you know, but we learned a ton of lessons about communicating clearly with transparency and and finding a path out of a, of a pretty dire situation. That's that's amazing. I, I, I love the, of course, we love the big 
exit because of success. And uh, but it's there's something about for an entrepreneur to be able to get out of of a difficult situation and standing to create the next thing well that's uh, i don't know for me it's even I, i i admire the most because it's so common that people would just give up and 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 become insolvent in, in this kind of situation but then you yep. can you cannot start the new thing you you would like to to start right that's right because then you've got that you know you've got the self-doubt and the financial pressures of going through you know whether it's bankruptcy or just you know, the, the type of financial pressures it puts you on, but it, it changes your, it, you know, it thickens your skin. Yeah. So we actually had a period of six months where we had the most, uh, the most of terrible things happen to our business. We had an IRS audit. We had wire fraud for over a hundred thousand dollars. We had a product liability concern that came up and we had patent litigation from an aggressive competitor. Mm -hmm. I mean, all this stuff happened like within six months, all six, you know, all hundred thousand dollar place issues. And, you know, we were, we were self-funded. There was no bank, there was no financial partner. Uh, there was a bank, but very tight, you know, covenants. So what, what we found is, you know, we had to work our way through it. When we got to the, to the other side, most of the financial partners or the exit partners we were talking to, they really did look at it as a capital constrained business. Not that we were failing as entrepreneurs, but if we had a little more financial elasticity or capital elasticity in our business, mm -hmm. most of those issues would have been solved with money. If yeah. you could make it, make the money back in two to three years as a business that's cash flow positive or, or effectively capitalized, we would, they, they wouldn't have been major issues. They would have just kind of resolved themselves. Um, but that's kind of the, the startup, the startup world, right? You just have to find a way to power through it. And when COVID, I'm sure a ton of people, you know, in your audience have dealt with all yeah. kinds of really challenging situations through COVID, you know, um, now people are dealing with supply chain issues, but it's all, how do you, how do you manage through the problems that are presented and, and find a way to, to find a way to get to the other side. That's a great segue to talk about how, how was it for, you guys during the height of the pandemic is is it is is it the story of struggle is it the story of growth because people were at home and, and maybe thinking about sleeping better or what, what's the story for you you know a little bit of both uh, most of the story was about growth the i would so tara took over as ceo my co-founder uh so i you know back to what i'm good at i'm really great in the hardware space mm -hmm. and basically we kind of felt like i took the hardware space about as But as far as I could take it, and it was time for her to, to kind of work on her leadership skills and her to run the business. She took over right around March 1st of 2020. Um, <laughs> and come about March 17th on St. Patrick's Day, literally sales dropped by 70%. Like the spigot just turned off. Uh, and I think that's probably pretty, pretty consistent across a lot of, of e-commerce business. Yes. Um, you know, no one bought anything until they knew what it does it mean for me. And uh, so after about two... You know, the crazy part is Tara, within 10 days, uh, took the most radical step, something I would never think to do. It was too scary for me. She said, well, we need to start giving away products. I was like, what are you talking about? Sales are off 70%. We have like less than 30 days of cash on hand. Like we can't give away product. How is that going to work? And she's like, no, to do right now. We need to give away product because if the COVID first responders, they're not sleeping. Look at what you're yeah. reading about in the hospitals and everything else. And I'm like, all right, let's find a way to make it happen. 
sure enough, we came up with a basically a one-for-one -one program where we donated a refurbished product for each one, each dual zone unit we we sold. And by the end of the year, we ended up giving away a million dollars in product. And that campaign really, really helped us spread the word with the people that needed sleep the most. We had over two, let's see, it was over 150,000 respondents of people requesting, you know, a free, a free product or to find a way to sleep better at night. And it, and it taught us a lesson of we probably would have done okay with the with with COVID in the end because of people sleeping at home looking to get better quality sleep, but. We ended up really prospering, and I think partly because of the fearless nature that that my co-founder took on how do how do we how do we engage in the conversation. Yeah, and and what a beautiful story because you were part of the program that helped face the crisis, right? So, uh, apart from a strategic move that's that's admirable, it's it's uh, a noble move that's even more admirable right and you know we've got a long we've got a lot of really loyal customers uh, we you know we've been doing this for since 2007 uh, so you know we, we've been able to really establish credibility in the market and i think i think thankfully our our kind of customer base stuck with us you know there's other challenges that we we're facing now or will face in the future and when you build a business with integrity I think you 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 probably have more elasticity with your core customers than than maybe entrepreneurs like to give themselves. We tend yeah. to be somewhat perfectionist in nature. We want it to go exactly the way it's supposed to go because we put so much time into thinking through all the variables and how to deliver a great product and a great user experience. And when it doesn't go well, it's so frustrating. But man, I think in general, if your customers understand where you're coming from. Uh, they'll give you a lot more, a lot, a lot bigger break. We had to spend a lot more time on video last year and make it personal yeah. um, because yeah. I think it wasn't personal. It didn't resonate. It was just some company giving you a lot of crap about failing, <laughs> why they failed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I was about to ask you about your DTC expertise because uh, I saw on your LinkedIn that that you you like helping founders with DTC stuff and and of course you you've done it a lot how uh, for, first of all how much of your current sales is direct to consumer about 85% 85% so you still have 15% uh, retail um actually it's probably about 13% re, uh, on Amazon. So I think from, from a direct-to-consumer business, you know, customer acquisition, profitable customer acquisition is hard. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, I would say the most important thing that we built our business on a B2B business because that's what I knew. So that's what I built. Mm -hmm. But that's not where our customers lived. Yeah. Our customers were shopping online, looking to solve the problems with uh, searching on Google or on Amazon. And so we... I had to basically, I, I hate to say lazy, but I had to learn how to reinvent our business because selling to B2B companies wasn't working. We weren't profitable. We weren't growing. Uh, we were basically just churning. We were running roughly break-even, so that would be better than break-even. When I finally understood the e-commerce math, um, our business grew basically a 20x in five years. Perfect. And it was just understanding Understanding our math, what can we spend to acquire a customer? What do you mean there's no budget? No, there's no budget. It's a ROAS target. As long as your spend yeah. is in line with your, your cost for acquisition is in line with your margins, spend as much as you can. Just make sure there's inventory behind it to support it. So 
understanding the math behind the really the, the revenue drivers. And, and that's the hard part for me is that that's a, that was something I prided myself in and understanding financial analysis and, and the balance sheet math of running a business. It was just completely from running an e-commerce company. And of course you made it through, like you, you, you were able to, to cross this learning curve and, and actually 85% uh, direct consumer is, is amazing, especially if you consider five years ago, you were thinking this is a B2B. And uh, how much do you do you invest in branding versus a customer acquisition, uh, like direct? We, we had to get very clear on that. We spend, historically, we would have spent virtually zero money on building the brand because how do you measure if it's working? So when it really came down to, we had to commit to being profitable because we didn't, we didn't have enough money in the bank account to do anything other than profitably acquire customers. And, and I felt like that was an easier path. That was something that we could clearly measure if we were being successful, profitably acquiring customers. Let's do more of that because we can do that forever. You know, spending money on uh, in customer engagement or the kind of the fancy things of brand awareness to me is just scary. We've never had enough elasticity, financial elasticity to spend time and money on those spaces. Now, one could say that that's at the detriment of building a, a global brand or a premium brand, that you have to have the right brand ethos, you have to have the right imagery, you have to have, you know, kind of everything dialed in so you can go, you know, show your best face. And and I I understand that. I, I I get that, but at the same time, for me, bootstrapping it for many years as we did, that's too scary. It's too scary to spend, you know, a six-figure check on something that you don't know when it's going to come back. That scares the heck out of me. Even now, I don't like doing it. Yeah, but when uh, you eventually started uh, doing some, like, branding effort or not? Yeah, we've, we've definitely, we you know, as, as you look to acquire customers in, in offline, Uh, you need to you need to start learning new lessons. At some point, you start losing efficiency of spend if you only go back to the same wells. So, yeah. how do you maintain efficiency? You have to continue to test new channels. How do you test radio if there's no direct attribution window? Um, you can try, but it's pretty difficult. Um, you know, we've been trying a lot with professional sports. We had a you know a, a great some great press in the last week of a formal partnership with the Mariners and, and the Reds. Um, you know, working with major league baseball teams. Still, we take a similar approach where we, you know, we don't open the checkbook first. We feel like we still try to do the hard work first. You know, we want them to sleep on our product. We want them to want to have better sleep. So it's an authentic story. Um, on our brand building stuff, I would say our biggest first investment was photography, um, mm -hmm. where we would have, you know, my version was let's go rent an Airbnb and get a local photographer and spend 5k and do a product shoot. Uh, so when, when my co-founder wanted to spend $80,000 and go to a real studio, uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania, I was pretty hard for me to swallow and it's been fantastic return on investment. It's been great. It's the crazy thing is that you have to feel the return. You you cannot measure it, right? <laughs> yeah. No. And and the more you know, sort of the more you grow, the more you have to. That's has to do with the feel of the business. Yeah. Because you can't measure it. But yeah, you can feel it. All the ads were just a little more efficient, and the other areas of our business were just they just were a little bit smoother because we were investing in in the right areas of our business. 
Yeah. Do you have many founders that that uh, ask you for advice? Many like new founders that they're looking up to you in terms of how to to do something similar as? Yeah, you know, I I try to spend a, a you know a reasonable amount of my time connecting and sort of giving back to the founder community um, because I you know it's hard, it's lonely, it's tough. Yeah. Um, you know, and so yeah, we we try to look for you know interactions where we can add direct value either through Uh, through experience or through, you know, something that we're particularly good at that matches well with what a founder may need. Uh, but yeah, we love giving back, you know, it's, it's both for Tara and I, Tara and I both. I'm, I'm the extrovert in the, uh, of the couple. Uh, so Tara is generally, she wants to get her work done and, and spend time at home with the kids, you know, with the kids and uh, not having to put herself out there. You know, I'm the guy that, you know, was typically on an airplane, you know, hanging out with someone at the bar, talking shop mm -hmm. or, whatever. So yeah, but we love connecting with people and, and finding ways to help people be more successful doing what they love to do. That's awesome. So uh, one uh, final question would be a founder running to you at the bar at the airport and they have an idea and they are ready to to take the first steps. And let's let's assume it's, it's a consumer uh, product uh, they want to yeah start and what's the first step i would start by understand your math and, and literally mm -hmm. this is you know i probably had the same conversation 30 times or more so tell me the math of your business sell for this to actually make sense mm -hmm. so a friend of mine wanted to do this golf kind of toy where you'd throw it on the golf course and you, you know you take a couple people and you'd you know i can't remember the, the exact game but basically you know when he did the math that he was going to take over half the garage his wife was going to be pissed And he was going to sell $5,000 a year and make $3 a piece. He's going to make $15,000 a year and his life is going to be a pain in the ass. No, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I think actually back into if I'm going to quit my job or take a new job, how much money do I need to make for that to be a good life experience? And what are the unit economics that I need to do? And then if you don't have money to start with, it's really hard to get over those thresholds. Does that mean you need to license it? instead of uh, produce it, but understand the business math and the economics that make have it make sense for you as an individual. And when you encounter uh, bad math, do you think it's more common that the person needs to pivot the product, the, the market, or any, any kind of bigger pivot? Or is it more common that tweaking the math and making sure, I don't know, you plan for growing bigger than you were anticipating or any any kind of thing is it more working on the math or pivoting i think it depends i think that there's some businesses that just will never stand on their own as mm -hmm. profitable entities and people just need to understand that this is a great add-on for another company but as an individual standalone if you want it to be a hobby great have fun let it be a hobby do something it's like a something you get paid for and it's fun awesome just don't expect to quit your day job In some cases, there can be a pivot to increase the addressable market or to just grow it slowly over time and then have it not be all consuming. So I think it depends on the situation. Um, but I think by and large, there are novel product opportunities that frankly aren't, couldn't possibly be successful business ventures. Yeah, and it's and it's good to I don't know to talk to someone and share this and be able to to I don't know decide if you want to continue on or or pivot with the help of of other and, people. 
For sure. And, and what are the costs of failure? For some people, if they've got a good job and they get money in the bank, they can spend fifty dollars or $100,000 to prove something out. And, and if it goes nowhere, it's not going to be a disaster. There's other people that they're taking out their retirement savings and their college savings yeah. for their kids, and they're going to take every dollar they have to go at it. And man, the costs of not being successful are so much higher, uh, depending on the finances involved. Uh, so I think that that's definitely a part the fear factor. And the other part is not everyone, not everyone's sort of wired to be a founder. It's high stress. It's, it's high personal risk. Uh, it's not comfortable. You know, there's a lot of pain that goes with it. Uh, so you have to kind of be able to have the appetite for, you know, you have to kind of be able to enjoy a roller coaster because it's generally not smooth sailing. I'm sure there's exceptions and, and there's people that have just had a great, a great ride of it, but in my experience, uh, it's a challenge and it never quite stops. It's like fitness. So our analogy recently, it's, it's like fitness um, or frankly, maybe mindfulness. But I like it. For me, it's fitness. When are you fit? When are you done? Yeah, you're not right. The moment <laughs> you're, you're done, you're talking, you're, you're planning your next workout. Right? You might be fit enough to do certain activities, um, but you're never like done working out. You're never done kind of progressing. You're trying to maintain the ability to do other things. And I think that's a lot like entrepreneurship, that it's 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 a journey. Yeah, that's that's amazing advice, man. It was an honor to talk to you today. Your stories of resilience and success and creativity and probably a lot of fun along the way Again. together with with the with the hardships are inspiring. Thank you so much, Todd. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. It was great to talk to you today. Bye, folks. All right. Thanks a bunch. Hey, I really, really hope this episode contributed to your journey and you were able to enjoy the conversation. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, and your favorite podcast app. I'm Daniel Weinman, and this was Beyond Technical, the non-technical founders podcast. <laughs>